In the name of the Father, in the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Well, as you all know, we have just arrived at the end of the Easter season and the last solemnity of the Easter season, that is the last day in which we sing the Alleluia, is uh, Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes and fires up the apostles in the cenacle. And with, the, with Pentecost, we come to the end of the Easter season, the end of the season in which God's dispensation and his sort of redemptive plan is exhibited and that it finishes with the coming of the Holy Spirit before they were the apostles were quite afraid and quite stressed and doubtful. But now with the coming of the Holy Spirit present among them there in the church, they are ready to undertake their mission. They perhaps still no doubt afraid, they but they are rendered more courageous. And that's why we say that the time after Pentecost is really what we know as the time of the church. And it is what is also called ordinary time. Ordinary. So we're no longer in Easter season. We're in ordinary time. That's why it's green. That's the color of ordinary time. And, well, when we hear that ordinary, it sounds like, well, it's just ordinary. It's just boring. It's just unappealing and, uh, you know vanilla-flavored ordinariness. You know, I mean, who goes to an ice cream store and orders vanilla? My dad used to always order vanilla. What are you doing ordering vanilla? And uh, it's ordinary. But, so, well, ordinary time is not boring time. It's ordinary time in the sense as it's the habitual, ordinary action of God in the world through the church. Right? That's the kind of what is meant by ordinary. And so this ordinariness uh, take also has uh, some solemnities. That is special feasts that are outside the Easter seasons, but then we call them solemnities. They are the solemnity of the Holy Trinity then we have the Solemnity of Corpus Christi. And then we have the Feast of the Sacred Heart. We also have the Feast of the, of, uh, the Immaculate Heart of Mary or the Sacred Heart of Mary. But this Sunday is the first Solemnity in Ordinary Time, which is Trinity Sunday. So... Well, we can ask ourselves, well, what gospel does the Church invite us to meditate on for this Sunday of the Blessed Trinity? Was it when Jesus outlined the nature of the Blessed Trinity, when he told us about the Blessed Trinity? In fact, well, we know very well that the word itself, Trinity, is not in the gospel. 
that we know would come later as a kind of shorthand for everything that the church, rather everything that Jesus himself taught. And the fact that we are able now to speak of the Trinity is in fact a proof that the Holy Spirit is present in the church because we came up with this concept, this just one word, Trinity, to to articulate the mystery of God as a communion of persons. Even though our Lord himself didn't say, by the way, God is a trinity. He didn't say that. But he did speak about the love of the Father. He did say he was sent from the Father. He did speak about the Spirit. He spoke about himself as the Son of Man, as being sent. Like if you're sent, you're sent from somebody. He didn't speak of himself as kind of a God who thought of this all himself. Like he, he said he was sent from the Father. And he even is shown praying to the Father. Yet there are elements that show that he is equal to the Father. And, uh, but that's why the, the passage we have from Sunday's Gospel is from St. Matthew at the very end where the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had ordered them to go. And uh, we are told, when they all saw him, they worshipped. But some doubted. And then Jesus approached and said to them, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, it has been given to me. Like, Like, who gave it to you? Well, God the Father gave it to him. And then he says, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So it's a beautiful, sort of encapsulates the mission that he is, that he is sending them on yet at the same time explaining that that authority has been given to him and that he wants them to make disciples. There he mentions the Father, he mentions the Son, of course, the Holy Spirit. But perhaps we can just stop here for a moment. They worshipped him, we are told, but some doubted. But, like, some doubted? They're on a mountaintop and some doubted. Who were these guys? Who, who's doubting here? And, and where did this hesitancy come from? We can imagine they were seeing Jesus on the hilltop, and there was a beautiful view. Maybe the sun was setting so that there was a marvelous background, like a, a nice sunset with this brilliant red, maybe with, a, yeah, yeah, with the clouds, and uh, he was silhouetted, and a halo came forth from him, and... And, the, and, and his garments were like shining white and the sound of his voice was strong and confident like a solid leader his hands extended over his flock in blessing like a shepherd protecting his sheep and they were mem- mesmerized by this almost in awe I mean they feared that they, they shouldn't say anything now lest they might be reproved or because they said something wrong. Oh, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father now. We're ready 
He says, don't you know that anyone, Philip, you know, anybody who sees me sees the Father. Which is another way of emphasizing the unity between the Father and the Son. But why this doubt? What's, what's the problem? Why did some of them doubt at this, at this solemn moment? Well, I would suggest that those who doubted might have been those who had been so deeply moved and touched and remembered deeply the, the prayer of Jesus to the Father when he had, especially in St. John, he, he, he spoke at length to the Father, explaining how he had now prepared them and that they were going to be sent out, or he would sigh gently sigh with the Spirit. And that prayer that they saw and his unity with the Father must have been so inspiring or so beautiful to listen to, right? That they, that, that gave them a, a faith in God the Father who had sent him, and but but also in the power of, of Jesus and and the exhilarating warmth, you could say, of the Holy Spirit. Not, not just a, an emotional or a passionate thing, but a, a real sense of his exhilarating presence. And they would have perceived something intrinsic about him and his relation to the Father. And, but now, as he was standing there alone on that hilltop, I would suggest that maybe the ghost of this military messiah was now conjured up to them. The very reasons why, why the Romans were afraid of him Maybe they, those who doubted, maybe they thought, well, maybe now he's going to tell us to take up the sword and conquer the Romans. Since he had risen, now we can, now we can take the Romans over like this political messiah that many Jews expected. It was like the charismatic moment of a military leader who wanted to lead his troops into battle. But they understood that that couldn't be right. But it kind of looked like it. So maybe that's what, I don't know, what do I know why they doubted? But that's, that might be a reason why they would have doubted. But then he said, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So that power could be military, it could be political of some kind. But then he said, therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, until the end of the age. I think when he said that, well, maybe they doubted at first, but now that, that was gone. I mean, <laughs> right? Teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. Be faithful to that, all that you have seen. So it was clear that that power, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me, was not the power of the sword. And maybe there was a great joy at hearing that word about the name of the Father. And, and they remembered that this was the Father that Jesus had prayed to, that this was the Father that Jesus had a relationship with and that they too deeply desired. And... Um, and also Jesus has spoken about the luminous figure of the Son of Man that is spoken of in the, in the prophet Daniel, one of the major prophets. And so, and he would be with them always. And that a, a, 
a mysterious spirit was really un the unifying factor to everything that Jesus uh, had been saying all along. Now, now the doubt was gone. Now, there was no actual word there of Trinity, but it would come with reflection based on these words and, all, of course, based on all these events. Now, the, the hesitancy, the doubt, yeah, that was all, that was gone. And they, they had been afraid that maybe there was some kind of solitary power that Jesus was going to enact, but he didn't do that. They perhaps didn't fully understand yet the exact nature of the fact that there were three persons in the Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because he told them to go baptize, but that there were not three gods that they were all God, but three persons. Probably at that point they weren't able to articulate it, at least not yet philosophically. We all know the famous story of uh, St. Patrick who, who picked up the shamrock leaf and uh, showed it to his friends but way back then, right, uh, when the doctrine of the Trinity was a little bit more developed and he's, you know, he showed them one leaf with three leaves, basically, or three... Yeah, one leaf, but three leaves. And um, and he said, is this one leaf or is it three leaves? And they looked at the shamrock and it said, well, it kind of looks like one, but it clearly has pretty much three parts. But if you break one off, you're, you know, you lose the whole leaf in some way, right? So they were in doubt. And he said, well, God is one God in three persons, but it's a little bit more complicated than that, I guess. <laughs> or perhaps more articulated by St. Cyril, St. Cyril in Methodius. So St. Cyril, who, who's the teacher of the Slavs, he, he is the one who is responsible for the Cyrillic language and translating the gospel to the Slavs. He tried to explain the mystery of the Blessed Trinity by using the sun as an example, like the sun, S-U-N, right? The, the blazing sun. He said, God the Father is that blazing sun. God the Son, S-O-N, is its light. And God the Holy Spirit is its heat. But there's only one sun, one S-U-N. So there are three persons in the Holy Trinity, but God is one and indivisible. Sun, S-U-N, light and heat. That's why the celebrant at Pentecost wears red. He's dressed in red because you're supposed to think not of blood when you have on Pentecost, but you're supposed to think of the, of the blazing, purifying fire of the Holy Spirit. Like the tongues of fire that came to rest on the heads of the apostles. That and they gave off light, they gave off understanding, they gave off warmth, they gave off charity, they gave off all those gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we know that the apostles themselves had a direct experience of the Father through seeing Jesus pray. They felt also the power of the Holy Spirit as they felt the tongues of the Holy Spirit, the tongues of fire that is on them. They heard the voice of the Father. And in some ways... They didn't really need all these images, you know, of the, of the, like, 
you know, St. Uh, Cyril or the Shamrock and all these images that were later used, and um, no doubt there are many others that came centuries later, because they had a deep, well, they had a direct experience of Jesus, and somehow that would have given them, synthesized for them already the truth of the Blessed Trinity. If you, if you saw the Lord, you would have not thought, well, he's just a solitary being that is God, now he's going back. He's going back, but he's still in some way going back to someone there. And so, though it maybe took a little while to synthesize, we know the Christian faith synthesized this truth as that, that, that God is one substance in three persons. God is not a solitude, but a perfect communion. And uh, that's why the human person, you and I, we are in the made in the image of God and we realize ourselves in love. And that love is just this sincere gift of ourselves. God is really a father and he really sent the son. And there's really a love between the father and the son. And that that the two makes that sending real and remains in us now in the Holy Spirit. And that's why as we, as we prepare for this, this, uh, this solemnity, it's good to reflect a little bit on the nature of the Blessed Trinity because our life clearly becomes very precarious when we lose a sense of relations, where we're coming from, where we're going, what our relations are, even family relations, and in particular, our relation to, 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 to the Father. Of course, to God the Father, which is expressed also to our human Father. Uh, Jacques Philippe recently wrote a book about fatherhood in priests, and it's a, it's a beautiful book. He, he has, a, he has a, just a a wonderful way of talking about fatherhood. And he talks about today's absence of a father figure, you know, th that of God himself, but of course is absent, uh, but also those who in one way or another are human versions of divine paternity. You know? And when there's an absence of the father figure in society, in families, in the church, there's this, this absence, this causes great painful consequences in people's lives. Anywhere where a father is absent, that's, it always leaves a mark in some way. Because why is that? And this is one of the things he, he mentions, one has to reflect on it a little bit. I mean, he's talking about it more in the, from the point of view of, uh, of um, fatherhood, in the church and, and, and in society, but you know, one reason it causes pain or has painful consequences is that the role of a father is to inscribe a child into a lineage and thereby giving access to a heritage, a heritage that the child must later himself transmit to others. Right? We all inherit something. Imagine if 
you just you had no inheritance whatsoever because I don't know you were just cut off that's a very would be a very painful thing and so with the father we have this question of a transmission and we know how difficult it is already today to transmit from one generation to the next everything that makes up the richness and the beauty of existence like we have an experience here in this life and we have to we have a responsibility to transmit it to the next generation and uh, we have to transmit the human values the spiritual values the culture the traditions that belong to our country our family and when there is in some way the lack of a paternal role that, that uh, transmission is made more difficult and we notice the shortcomings produce a certain when there's no when there's no interest in this transmission like if i don't feel that i have a responsibility to transmit what i have received from somebody else well, what kind of person does that make me? If a person is like that. If a person has no awareness of what is owed to those who came before, who has no sense of responsibility toward those who will come after, well, if you don't think, wait, why am I what I am now? It's because I have a father. Because it has been given to me. And I also have a mother. I have parents who have given this to me. And teachers and, and others and, you know, mentors. I have to have, therefore, gratitude. And I have to hold this treasure and pass it on to others. But if you don't have an awareness of what is owed to those before then you have no sense of responsibility for those who are coming after. And without gratitude for the past, without responsibility to others in the future, well, it's, it's logical that one, uh, well, that, that a person will be content to profit from life to the maximum in a, probably in a very selfish and individualistic manner. And that's not a, it's not an uncommon thing, you know, the, person who's able just to just to lock themselves into their phones and lock themselves into Netflix and the other thing that happens I mean the many, many I suppose many other things when fatherhood is kind of broken down but you know Pope John Paul II wrote a beautiful encyclical saying that God is divis in misericordia rich in mercy rich in mercy and so Without fatherhood, well, there's no mercy. There's no mercy. And we see this, that in the modern world, the, the modern world believed it was good to proclaim the death of God and acceded to the great lie of atheism. And by his laws and commandments, they said, this was the lie. This is what the, the lie of atheists say, that by his laws and commandment, God prevents man from being free. He puts laws, you can't be free, you just have to do this. And so they think, well, we have to get rid of him, and then the human person will be finally free and happy and set free of any constraints, 
and even any guilt. Just do whatever you want. You'll be free. That's what the atheist lie says. But even though this lie has led to millions of, of deaths and the temptation to both make God and all forms of paternity the enemy of human freedom and consider all sort of vertical relationships as, a, as, a, as an oppression, things are not that simple, basically. Because if there is no God, there's no God, there's no forgiveness, and therefore no mercy. And the example that he gives is the example of the prodigal son. We all know the story of the prodigal son, we're all familiar with, because it gives us a marvelous view of divine paternity. The father of the prodigal son is the father, and we all recognize that story of the two brothers. And they claimed, and the younger one, of course, claimed his inheritance, and he went off to a foreign land. Right? So he had that inheritance from his father. Not from his brother, but from his father. And then, of course, we know how he misspent all that inheritance and he found himself in a very unenviable position of feeding pigs and stuff. And not, 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 great, not a great sign of success for a, for a Jewish family. There he is dying of hunger. And so, in his situation, he's able to reflect and he decides in this situation to make a little speech and say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this little speech and I'm gonna say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to call your son. You can treat me as one of your high servants. Okay, that's his speech. But we all know what happened. We all know when he prepared that little speech, the father sees the son, doesn't even let him say anything, just covers him, kisses, embraces him, the mercy of the Father, image of the mercy of God. And he says, he gives orders to the servants, go and put, you know, a suitable clothing, make him look beautiful, put a ring on his finger, which is a sign of his dignity, and so forth, and sandals on his feet, and start a party, get the best wine out, let's do it. And get the, uh, the, the guitars out, we're going to dance and have a good time. Now imagine, that's what he says, imagine if we were to redo the story, but now eliminate the figure of the father. And so imagine, the son comes back, he's got his speech already, but there's nobody there. The house is empty. You know, empty, abandoned, the wind in the clapboards. Right? And uh, there's nobody to welcome him. No one even to pardon him. No one to love him. No one to tell him, in spite of what you've done, in spite of your errors, your sin, you will remain my beloved son. There's nobody. Imagine that. Nobody to tell him you can regain your dignity that you lost. Well, we cannot forgive ourselves of our sins. That boy could not have said, oh well, my dad's not here, I'll just forgive myself and do whatever. No. We cannot absolve ourselves of our own errors. I mean, 
psychologists often say you have to forgive yourself and with all due respect to them I mean they, I'm sure they do a lot of pre power you know, good things but the greatest power you can receive from a priest is when the priest says I absolve you from your sins when you go to confession it's really the mercy of God the Father it's not the mercy of the priest himself although he expresses it well let us finish uh, our prayer and, and ask, ask God to, to help us understand more that divine mercy of the Father in our life. And, and because we are living in a paradoxical society that on the one hand it's very lax and permissive, you can do whatever you want, you know, it's, 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 you know. And on the other hand, without mercy for those who make mistakes, right? It's, it's, you know, Pride Month, we can do whatever you want, be whatever you want, be whatever gender you want, but you say one little thing off and you're cancelled. Like the slightest thing you say. Well, in the kingdom of God, it is exactly the reverse. There are strong demands to live a correct moral life, a good path, but there's great mercy. And there's always the possibility of renewal, even if we sin, even if we make errors. There's no cancel culture in the church in, with God the Father. He doesn't cancel us and delete our Twitter account or whatever it is, you know, the, the, whatever way they, they cancel you these days. So let us ask our Blessed Mother, who has the maternal heart, to open us to the mercy of God the Father, so that we too be merciful in our heart, but that we relate to God the Father as our Father, God the Son as our brother, and of course the love, uh, the love of the Holy Spirit. So it'll give us that fire and that sense of mission to spread this love throughout the world. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you all to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.